Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Justin Logan. I'm the Associate Director of the Foreign Policy Studies Program here at Cato. I'd like to thank you for coming out to our event today uh, on Sudan after the elections. Um, we have what I think is a quite good panel uh, of experts uh, to discuss the issues, uh, looking back on the implications of the elections, the, the elections themselves, uh, and where events look likely to lead in the wake of the elections. So in lieu of any uh, commentary on my part, I'll go ahead and just introduce the experts and then get out of the way. The first presenter this afternoon is Sean Brooks, who's a senior policy analyst at Save Darfur, and he's led a, a number of the coalition's outreach efforts within uh, particularly targeted at international organizations, uh, those in the Arab world and with S Sudanese civil society. Prior to joining Save Darfur, Brooks worked in the president's office of AU Cairo and volunteered at a refugee center teaching English courses for refugees primarily from Sudan and Somalia. Originally from Mocala, Florida, Brooks holds a master's in international relations and international economics with a concentration in Middle East studies from Johns Hopkins SAIS and a bachelor's degree from Davidson College. The second presenter this afternoon is Mark Gustafson, who's a Marshall Scholar and doctoral candidate at the University of Oxford St. John's College. He specializes in modern Middle Eastern studies and the politics of Sudan. Mark's particular academic interests include elections, activism, counterinsurgency strategies, and political Islam. He's the author most recently, I think, of Rethinking Darfur, a policy study published by the Cato Institute, questioning much of the conventional wisdom about the conflict in Darfur. And cleaning up this afternoon is John Temin, who's the senior program officer in the Center for Mediation and Conflict Resolution at the U.S. Institute of Peace where he leads the Institute's Sudan team. He's the author of more than a dozen publications focusing on Africa, conflict, governance, and media in respected journals, edited volumes, and newspapers. Mr. Temin is an adjunct professor at Webster University, where he teaches graduate-level courses on Africa and humanitarianism. He holds a bachelor's degree from Swarthmore College and also an MA uh, in international relations from Johns Hopkins SAIS and is a former Fulbright Fellow in Ghana. So with that, I'll turn things over to Sean Brooks. Sure. Thank you. Present. I'm sorry, everyone can present, if you will, from the... Okay. the Thank you, Justin. Thanks again for the invitation to speak here. Um, I'm uh, not going to uh, spend much time uh, discussing the, the actual outcomes of the elections, as uh, I think that uh, most individuals here probably have, have followed to a certain extent the first uh, multi-party elections in Sudan in 24 years that took place in April. Um, what, uh, what occurred was that the Sudanese uh, millions uh, went to the polls and uh, the, the results were announced in, in late April uh, with Omar al-Bashir receiving 68% um, of the vote for president, uh, so remaining president, and Salva Kiir of uh, becoming the president of the government of South Sudan with 93% of the vote. Uh, instead of a, uh, a contentious uh, polling uh, between the, the parties, the uh, opposition parties uh, announced uh, days before the elections that they would uh, boycott 
challenging Omar al-Bashir. Uh, and so uh, we were left with 68% um, uh, voting for Bashir. And uh, again, the, the 93% in the South for Salva Kiir. The, in the National Assembly, uh, both the SPLM, the Sudan People's Liberation Movement, and the National Congress Party, Omar al-Bashir's party, collectively took 95% of the seats. So those are what we have left uh, going into the next uh, critical six months for Sudan as it uh, heads towards a referendum for southern secession. Um, and while I was not in Sudan uh, for the elections, I was there two months prior on a trip with colleagues from the Save Darfur Coalition. And we met with a number of different actors, political actors within Sudan, including uh, individuals from the, the government and Bashir's party, the NCP, as well as opposition leaders, the SPLM, civil society actors, leaders in the Darfur in internally displaced camps, uh, individuals and leaders of the U uh, UN mission in Sudan and the UN African Union hybrid peacekeeping force in Sudan. And so uh, really part of the trip was to assess uh, the attitude toward the elections and what people thought the elections could mean for the, the future of Sudan. In many of the conversations that we had with leading members of the National Congress Party, we heard repeatedly how these elections were uh, going to be a milestone in the democratic transformation of the country, and that the National Congress Party, which has ruled since 1989, had uh, collectively reached a consensus that democracy was the best way forward, and that through a democratic process, the country would realize peace and development and, a, and set up a peaceful transfer of power. Um, in one conversation in particular with the senior advisor to uh, President Bashir, uh, Mustafa Ismail, he, he said these things as well as that the elections would help bring the marginalized people of Sudan uh, into the government and, and really be a turning point. That's what the, that was the general message before the elections, and that is the narrative that the NCP and Omar al-Bashir now have after the elections, after gaining the 68% for Bashir and, and the seats in the, the parliament. And the NCP is really taking credit for these historic elections and arguing that they're pushing Sudan to these long-term goals of peace and development and improving the lives of their citizens. I was in Geneva um, until yesterday Day, uh, at the UN Human Rights Council and uh, at a side event, a leading NCP member said those very words and he said that uh, the, the elections um, really uh, were, were just monumental and that there was not a single act of violence and that women and Darfuris participated fully in the process and that all of this was observed uh, and reported by international monitors and uh, that was the case that the Sudanese government is making. Uh, I was at the council uh, with Darfuri and Sudanese human rights defenders, though, who had a very different account of the elections and saw these statements from the NCP as really carefully crafted rhetoric before, during, and after the elections. And what they have been shocked by is the apparent 
willingness of the international community to treat these elections as either just another uh, box to tick as the country heads towards the referendum in January um, and, and not as an exercise to hold the NCP and the SPLM and all political actors in Sudan accountable for, for their actions. Um, and so while I don't uh, – well, because there's so much at stake in the next year for Sudan – I don't think now is the time to rehash how the United States or others approach the elections. So I'm going to focus most of my comments on what the elections mean in Sudan going forward and how the U.S. should approach the change dy dynamics within Sudan resulting from these elections. Let me say, though, that in some ways the NCP was right. There was a small opening of political space before the elections that they allowed. Um, there were greater uh, freedoms for the press and for political uh, parties in the, the months before the elections. Even some of the opposition party members that we met with while in Khartoum spoke of this margin of freedom that uh, existed for the first time in the capital. Northern parties were by and large not encumbered in their campaign efforts with, with some notable exceptions. Um, however, that did not mean that the national intelligence and security services of uh, the uh, government and Khartoum stopped doing what they're so good at, it, which is operating under the, the radar. Uh, students and youth activists were in particular targeted in the months before the elections. In fact, I was, uh, a day after I arrived in Khartoum, a student, uh, Darfur uh, student, from the University of Khartoum was picked up in the middle of the day outside of his uh, university uh, by two trucks of armed men, and the next day his body was dropped off dead, beaten, and tortured at, near the university, sending a message to many activists and, and students who would attempt to um, uh, mobilize against the regime ahead of the elections. There were other cases of um, such student and youth activists being detained and harassed and intimidated. Uh, so as such, it was really a margin of freedom that opened up before these elections, and it did not include Darfur. The emergency law in Darfur that allows the security and the military uh, to operate with impunity uh, remained intact. And in traveling through Darfur in the months before the elections, it was clear to me that the gun still prevailed over any form of normal political dialogue. Opposition candidates who ran in the elections in Darfur faced intense personal risk, and these were some of the same risks that caused the EU monitoring observation mission to pull out of Darfur in the days before the elections there and kept other monitoring teams confined mostly to the three capital cities of Darfur. Uh, turning to the south, the, the SPLM, the government of South Sudan, also by and large uh, opened up political space and allowed for a competition, but there were many instances where they used their state and political dominance in the same ways as the NCP. And in the final weeks of the campaign, the northern opposition uh, ended up, uh, including the SPLM, choosing to boycott the elections, and in my opinion, they 
chose not to seize this small window of opportunity in Sudan's political history. Um, while the SPLM and these other parties cited Darfur and a lack of political freedoms as their reason for withdrawing, I think that it's clear that the SPLM uh, decided not to contest uh, or to rock the political boat eight months before the referendum and so gave up some of their commitments to democracy throughout the country. And that then, after that decision was made, the other parties also chose not to really put the NCP rhetoric to the test. And going back to that statement that you hear often, that there was no political violence in Sudan during the elections or before the elections, I think uh, that ignores the government military offensive in Darfur that began in mid-February in Jebel Mora against one of the last strongholds of the rebel movement that led to mass displacement of civilians, uh, many lives lost, and for which we still don't have accurate reporting because the government of Sudan denied the UN African Union peacekeeping force access to Jebel Mora. Um, so that was how the election, that was, that concerns the pre-election period and the election period. And what's very worrisome is that after the elections, we have seen this type of harassment and repression from Khartoum stepped up. Um, they have seemingly taken uh, the election victory as a mandate to to continue uh, their uh, ways of, of really uh, holding on to uh, and, and managing political uh, debate and, and competition within Sudan. Uh, in the last month, they've detained Hassan al-Turabi, uh, the actual ideological godfather of this regime, uh, but now an op- a leading opposition member. He remains in detention. They briefly detained another opposition leader. Uh, They've closed the newspapers of Tarabi. They've tortured uh, journalists, and they have reinstituted a policy of pre-censorship for most of the newspapers in Khartoum. They've also prevented activists, including the daughter of the former prime minister, Sadiq al-Mahdi, from traveling to Kampala to attend the, the International Criminal Court Review Conference. And over the last two weeks, they've arrested and detained a number of doctors who have been striking uh, for higher wages. So this is a crackdown um, as in Khartoum, which even the United States government acknowledged this week was extremely uh, worrisome. Uh, In addition to what's happening in Khartoum, the Sudanese government has launched a new offensive in Darfur against the justice and equality movement, which they had signed a ceasefire agreement with in uh, February. And this has led to May being the most violent month in Darfur since the UN-African Union peacekeeping mission has been uh, deployed in, in the region. In the south, the SPLM has also taken blunt and sometimes violent steps to clean up after the elections. Journalists have been detained, and also there have been clashes between the the southern army and some renegade generals who have rejected the results of the elections. So where do, where do these elections and this post-election um, uh, crackdown in Khartoum and violence in Darfur leave us? Well, I remember being in Khartoum talking to Dr. Ghazi Salahuddin, the uh, chief interlocutor for the NCP to the West and uh, in February, and his curt words, things will be different after the elections. Um, before the trip, 
I was somewhat agnostic to the view of, of many with the, the Carter Center and the uh, and IRI, NDI, other democracy promotion uh, organizations that these elections, while not perfect, could help create a culture of, of, of democracy and human rights, that they would be a, a first step but not a full step in that process. And while I was there, I actually um, bought into that, uh, thinking that these elections, if they were conducted in, with the right political environment, um, could help lead to democratic change in the country. However, what we've seen uh, in the last days before the elections, during the elections, and now after the elections, I think it's fair to say that that did not occur, and instead we may be taking a step backwards. I think that the elections, for a variety of reasons, have led to two primary outcomes. Number one, the full demonstration of the monopoly of power and politics by both the NCP and SPLM. And second, the emboldening of the hardliners within the NCP and the separatists within the SPLM. And these are the current dynamics in Sudan as we approach the critical referendum next January and the uh, transition period that may take place after that. And as such, there are three important implica implications for the, these post-election dynamics. First, I believe they provide a dangerous precedent uh, for both the NCP and the SPLM as how they will approach the referendum. Both have likely not been persuaded by the virtues of open political discourse. And instead, I believe they will continue to rely mainly on political domination to achieve their objectives. The second implication is that Darfur is now marginalized in national politics more than ever. Uh, the only 1.1 uh, million of the 2.4 million Darfuris that registered uh, showed up to vote. Uh, that's out of a population of 7 million. Uh, none of the, those that uh, are opposed the NCP were uh, really elected, um, with, with a few exceptions. And not only have Darfuris not gained any seats at the table in Khartoum, but the elections exacerbated internal political issues within Darfur. And this recent fighting between the Justice Equality Movement and the Sudanese government is one example. The election of Janjaweed leaders like Musa Halau, Jan the Janjaweed being the notorious militia that carried out much of the violence over the last few years. He's now, Musa Halau and others are now elected members of parliament. Um, and I can, can add more examples in the, the question and answer answer. Um, and third, the third implication is that politics and Khartoum are now uh, more polarized. And that means that there's no conversation about what the next steps for democratic change or human rights are in the, the north. Um, the NCP hardliners seem to have taken control and the northern opposition has naturally now walked away from any dialogue with the NCP. Um, these are, there will be important questions about governance in maybe what's left of Sudan after the referendum, uh, in the in questions of how to govern in places like Darfur and in Khartoum and other marginalized areas in the north, yet there are no actors engaging in a dialogue about that future at this time. And so issues of what will happen to the interim national constitution, which per the comprehensive peace agreement, um, 
between the North and the South uh, will expire uh, with the referendum. There's no discussion of what the Constitution will look like. And instead, you have this regime in Khartoum that is acting um, to, to clamp down on political space once again, arrest its opponents, intimidate, harass, torture in some cases, those who would challenge its view of how to run the country. So what does this mean for U.S. foreign policy? Well, first, I think that the U.S. needs to lead the international community in coordinating the sticks, the carrots, and the technical assistance uh, for, uh, for the period leading up to the referendum in a way that it did not for the elections. The U.S. didn't really set clear benchmarks for itself or for the actors, and therefore it couldn't bring the international community around to those. And then specifically, I think that the United States needs to learn lessons from the elections and apply them to the referendum, and specifically, or especially, um, the fact that the political environment in which the referendum is held is just as important as the technical processes of voting. And that was most of the most people were focused on the technical process of the elections and not the political environment. The second is that what's happened over the last few months has really um, uh, pushed the or has really upset any progress that was made in the Darfur peace process. So the focus, rather than being on securing a negotiated agreement between the rebels and the government, should really be on security on the ground, rule of law, um, and making life a little bit better in the short term for Darfuris. The third is that United States has to lead the way in denouncing human rights violations by all those that would commit them in Sudan, as it did this week, denouncing the crackdown in Khartoum, and send a message that this type of behavior won't be tolerated by the international community. And then fourth, think with those in Sudan and those other stakeholders on other mechanisms to find uh, ways to promote democratic reforms in the north. The South is most likely going to secede, but what will be left in the North, and what are the mechanisms to, to push uh, the regime to really reform and to change its ways? That, those conversations aren't happening at this time. Thank you, Justin, and thank you to the Cato Institute for inviting us. Um, it's a pleasure to be on the panel with uh, Sean and uh, and John, who are both very thoughtful analysts of the of what's happening in in Sudan and Darfur. Uh, I, I am going to talk about the positive and negative outcomes uh, of the election and address them separately. I think a lot of what Sean said was uh, was very accurate about the, the negative. Um, aspects of the elections and some of the things that happened. I, I do disagree with, with some of the things he said, but um, I, I will focus on some of the, the positive aspects as well. And I also um, will um, talk about what the U.S. government's approach to um, Sudan policy, policy should be uh, in addition. So let me start with the, with the positives. Um, I, I was in... Darfur for the month leading up to the elections and during the elections and, and a, a couple weeks after. And uh, as flawed as the census and the electoral laws and the, um, the constituency boundary process um, were, uh, 
there was also significant uh, investment of resources and uh, and time in creating these electoral laws. And I think that this is an important foundation for Sudan's future elections. I think it's a lot easier to reform electoral laws than it is to start from scratch. So I think that that is one uh, major positive that came from the elections. Uh, the, the next one... Um, is about the two-party system that um, is now in place in Sudan. After the elections, we've seen that the SPLM in the south and the NCP in the north uh, won in their respective regions by more than 90%. Uh, Just to be cynical for a minute and and realistic to a certain extent, I think this is the only way that the referendum could move forward. And I think this is the only way that Um, the peace process between the North and the South um, can be successful because we've seen many times in the past uh, where the National Assembly in Sudan um, was unable to come to agreements when there were too many opposition groups uh, from the North in power. And those opposition groups do not normally, uh, are not normally very friendly to uh, the Southern uh, Sudanese groups. So I think that that that's important, as cynical as it is, um, and is going to allow for the referendum process and also demonstrates, to a certain extent, the impossibility of the, these elections and the, their timing. Uh, civic education programs uh, in Darfur and in South Sudan really flourished in some areas, and a lot of people learned how to vote. They learned how to be engaged in the process. They learned how to run as candidates and develop their own political parties. And yes, there were many problems associated with that, and uh, there wasn't full freedom um, of expression and um, full freedom for, for candidates, but they, uh, they learned, how, voters learned how to vote, and they learned how to be engaged in the process, and that's, there's a certain legacy there that I think will continue into the future. Uh, the process also reinvigorated opposition groups, even though it marginalized them in the end. They were and are very much a part of this process. Uh, even though many of the opposition groups boycotted, they continue to be engaged. And to this day in Khartoum, there are opposition groups in the High Court and in the Supreme Court um, arguing about where the constituency boundaries in Darfur should be. And so there's an engagement there in the legal process that's really important for democracy. Uh, the next one, um, this is my final point on the positives, there were some small victories um, for democracy in, uh, throughout Sudan, and albeit there were few of them. But in South Darfur, um, three women candidates from the People's Congress Party uh, won National Assembly seats. Uh, two independent candidates in North Darfur won seats in the National Assembly. There were two competitive races uh, for the gubernatorial, uh, two competitive gubernatorial races in West and South Darfur, and a very competitive race um, that was called free and fair by all the observers in Blue Nile State uh, for the governor's position there. Um, so those are those are important, and I think that um, they show that in some ways the electoral process has been positive. But like Sean said, there are a lot of negatives. Um, this, the intimidation in the South, I didn't see it in, in Darfur. Um, I saw a lot of um, other uh, manipulations and, and problems with the electoral process, but I, I didn't see the level of intimidation that I heard was happening in the South. And both of those um, things are, are problems and put a scar on Sudan's future um, and in its path towards democracy. So um, distrust and animosity as well between the parties 
um, only grew during this process, and tensions are exacerbated, and this will cause uh, long-term problems, especially in um, in northern Sudan. <clears throat> um, and then, fourth, the peace process in Doha has been undermined by the electoral process. The power-sharing arrangements that were in place and the administrative arrangements that were in place uh, are, are now void because the government can come forward to the rebel groups and say, we were democratically elected in Darfur. We have... Uh, members in the state assembly and the national assembly and you can no longer be there and so there's no point of negotiation anymore on the power sharing arrangements that are happening in Darfur unless they undermine the electoral process the uh, last point um, is similar to my other ones this just sets a poor precedent for elections in the future and uh, Darfuris are going to be dis disenchanted by the process and look back to this election and say, you know, why should I vote again in the next one if um, if this has already happened before, if manipulation and, and intimidation has already happened, it's just going to happen again. So, so, so yes, there are positives and negatives on both sides. Um, and that brings me to uh, the next point, which is about the referendum. And I want to comment on that briefly as a segue into my discussion about um, the U.S. policy towards Sudan. The, there seems to be a consensus now in the international community, especially in the United States, that there are two options. There's secession and there's unity, and both are likely to cause conflict. Um, we're starting to hear a lot, especially just in the past few weeks. In, in the L.A. Times a week ago, Michael Fleischman said, um, had quoted someone in Sudan as saying, war is inevitable. Uh, the BBC yeah, yesterday had said that war is, is very likely if secession occurs. Um, th these are all quotes that they have taken from people in Sudan. They're not saying this directly. Um, and there was another Reuters um, article that I read last week about secession occurring and that leading ultimately to is inevitable violence. I think that this argument is a lot more nuanced. And I think there's a lot in between unity and secession. In name only, the South can secede, and it probably will because most Southerners want it to. Uh, but behind the scenes, the arrangements for power sharing and for wealth sharing and the interim constitution are benefiting both parties, both dominant parties in the South and in the North. And it's not in their best interest to argue uh, or to... to try and split from each other. Their relationship with each other is benefiting both of them, and it's allowing them to be dominant parties in their respective regions. So I think that the process um, of the referendum will be a series of negotiations and tweaking of the interim constitution and the arrangements that are in place right now. Uh, of course, war is always likely. This is Sudan, and it, there's a history of war there. But but I, I don't necessarily think that um, this is a polarized black and white argument. I think there's a lot in between. And, and with that said, um, I think the U.S. government needs to keep that in mind and its approach to the region. And I think that um, Special Envoy Gratian, as folksy and as friendly as he is, um, as he comes across, he, he's a very sharp um, man who understands 
the politics in Sudan and East Africa very well. And he's learned from the experience of, uh, although he was not there, but he's, he's learned from the U.S.'s experience in the Abuja talks that uh, pushing policy and using deadline diplomacy and too much of a stick um, doesn't get you very far in Sudan. And the, what I'm referring to is when the U.S. and the U.K. diplomats moved into the Abuja talks and put a lot of pressure on the participants there, the peace agreement um, eventually fell apart, and they have not been able to repair it since. And that is largely due to the fact that most of the um, uh, pressure was put on these parties who weren't ready to come to an agreement. So I think that there's something to be said for having a patient uh, approach and being a facilitator of negotiations and and peacemaking um, in the region, and I, I think that that's the approach that's being taken now. Although there's a lot of controversy in Washington about whether or not that's the, that's the right approach. Um, so my second point is about the language that's being used in Washington right now. There's no agreement on what to call. Uh, the situation in Darfur and how to approach the government of Sudan. But most importantly, the idea of genocide, which seems like an outdated argument now, uh, is still at the forefront and is important uh, because a lot of the administration still says that Dar the genocide is continuing in Darfur. And at one point in the discussion in 2003 and 2004, I think there was a thoughtful debate on both sides of whether or not genocide was occurring. But I think now, uh, if you look at the violence and you track exactly where it comes from and you see which parties are participating and you see the, the Arab, uh, self-identified Arabs fighting self-identified Arabs in some regions, seeing rebel groups fighting other rebel groups, the idea that a genocide is still going on in, in Darfur is, is an outdated argument. And I, and I don't see that that's a thoughtful debate anymore. Uh, in addition to that, um, and this is my last point, it, this is about the UN peacekeeping mission there. I, I think that the peacekeeping mis mission uh, as a whole needs to be challenged more than it is um, for three reasons. I think, uh, one, there are many IDP camps around Darfur that uh, Sean and I both have spent time in and, and visited, and many of these refugee or these IDP camps are becoming breeding grounds for the rebel movements and there's a lot of animosity that can be fostered in an environment like an IDP camp and we can see that in many other places of, of the world. This is a trend that's happening worldwide. We can see that with Hezbollah and Hamas and other places where there are camps. These are the areas where there, uh, a lot of rebel movements begin. Um, and my uh, second point is that the carjacking industry in Darfur is very interesting and underappreciated. Last year, 277 vehicles were hijacked. These are vehicles, heavy-duty quarter-ton trucks in some cases, uh, SUVs, Ford 150 pickup trucks. Uh, the, the chief of um, Unimed in, in West Darfur I had dinner with, and his, his Ford 150 was hijacked on the way, and then when they came to pick them up, that uh, vehicle was hijacked uh, on top of that. And so my point is that if you put this all together and take the average cost of an SUV, which I've been looking into, and, and to get it to Darfur is about $60,000. $60,000 times 277 vehicles. This is a 20 to $30 million industry that's happening in, in Darfur. These are the rebel groups who are benefiting from this. 
20 to $30 million going to the rebel groups in the form of the, the most valuable commodity for a rebel group or for a, a Darfuri for that matter, an SUV. It, this is literally the vehicle in which they launched the insurgency in the fight against the government. So I think that the, um, these two issues are, are, are worth looking at. And then, of course, um, in, in general, on the macro level, the peacekeeping mission um, has no exit strategy has no long-term goals right now. It's just in a static uh, place where there's no pressure for the UN peacekeeping mission to leave. And I think that these are important things to assess. Thank you. Let me thank the organizers very much for having me to speak here, and I'll try to be fairly brief And because I think the, a lot of the time is best used for some question and answer and some dialogue amongst the panelists. Um, I'm sure most people here are familiar with the U.S. Institute of Peace. We're an uh, uh, organization that's founded and funded by the U.S. Congress, but just important to emphasize that we are not a part of the government in any real way, and I do not speak for the government in any way at all. Um, I'll, I'll talk briefly a few points on the elections, but then I'm going to focus um, primarily on what comes next on the referendum uh, that is now seven months away. I was not an observer in the elections as Mark was. I was in Khartoum the week after the elections um, and saw some interesting things. Clearly, there was a wide range of quality of the elections, and as Mark observed, the status, status quo outcome was pretty much the result, and it uh, works out pretty well for both primary parties, NCP and SPLM. A lot of people in Khartoum were disappointed that SPLM chose not to uh, compete in many parts of the North, and in particular to withdraw their presidential candidate, Yasser Arman. I think a good number of, of opposition types in Khartoum and elsewhere in the North had really uh, attached some of their hopes to Yasser's candidacy and were disappointed when he chose not to run. I think it's also worth pointing out that um, given the the troubles and the flaws in the elections, which were substantial, uh, if the referendum is anything like the quality of the elections, it's a very problematic situation. Um, when there is a vote to decide whether a country divides into two, it's important that the outcome and the will of the people is as crystal clear as possible. Uh, if it is not, it leaves a lot of people, a lot of countries in a very awkward position, especially countries that are trying to decide whether they recognize the outcome of the referendum, especially if it uh, results in secession for the South. As Mark said, there were some positive aspects of the elections, um, and he touched on a lot of them. I just want to add that um, the role of Sudanese civil society and the development of Sudanese civil society in the election process uh, I thought was impressive, particularly what they did with domestic election observation networks. There were thousands of Sudanese observers in the north and the south uh, deployed all over the country, some of them at great risk, some of them ended up in jail, um, especially in the south, which is especially worrying. 
but there was this little bit of extra space uh, that was created by the elections, a sort of umbrella under which civil society could work. And they did a good job of using that space and of growing and developing. The question now, of course, is does that space continue to exist and does civil society continue to grow and to try to expand that space? And uh, as Sean alluded to, the, the initial uh, indications are not encouraging. I think it's also not too early to start thinking and talking about Sudan's next elections. You know, Whether they're four years away or five years away, it probably feels like they're 50 years away. Uh, but to continue to encourage the habit of doing this, not just occasionally when there's a big deal like the CPA, but actually every four or five years on a regular basis, and to look for continuing uh, progress in the quality of the elections, which is how elections have progressed in a lot of other African countries. Uh, not perfect, but if you can get better and better progressively, then you're going in the right direction. Uh, but finally on elections, I also want to... Uh, just raise the question of the sort of formulaic approach that the international community often takes in these post-conflict environments, you know, whatever that means, but the sort of, you know, let's have elections two or three years after the peace agreement, check that box and move on. Um, you know, there was a ton of time, effort, and money put into these elections in Sudan, which resulted in the status quo and not a heck of a lot of change. And so I think they are... There are legitimate questions about whether that effort and time and money could have been better used elsewhere, uh, particularly given some of the extreme poverty that we see throughout Sudan. Um, I, don't, I haven't decided on that, but I think it is worth questioning in the broader context of how we deal with, uh, with post-conflict states. So let me turn from there to, to what comes next. Uh, referendum, everybody knows, is in January 2011. A lot of steps between here and there and pretty limit, limited time. Uh, first of all, in terms of just the mechanics of the referendum itself, uh, it is not easy. There needs to be a referendum commission formed by both the parties, and right now the rumor is that they have agreed on the names, which is encouraging. Uh, that commission needs to form officially. They need to put together a budget for the referendum. That budget needs to be funded for the referendum. And then there needs to be registration for people who are going to vote in the referendum. The election registration and the referendum registration are two different things. Um, and so now we're talking about registering large numbers of people primarily in the south, but also in other parts of Sudan and possibly in the diaspora, uh, during the rainy season in the south. Uh, and obviously that's a, a great challenge given logistical constraints. It's particularly important, I think, to focus in the referendum lead-up on the quorum that is part of the referendum and part of the legislation governing the referendum. Uh, it's pretty clear if the referendum was held today, you know, what direction the vote would go. Uh, but for the referendum to count, 60% of registered referendum voters have to vote, and that's not a given. Um, and again, the logistical challenges in Sudan uh, make that uncertain in my mind. And so we, we tend to overlook that, but that's really important that that referendum quorum be met. Uh, if it isn't, uh, technically if it isn't the first time, they do it again. Uh, if it isn't met either time, uh, it's a very uh, questionable place that Sudan would be in at that point. So referendum uh, logistics are one. There are outstanding aspects of the CPA itself that remain unaddressed. The most important of them is border demarcation between the north and the south. 
just the other day, the vice president of the government of southern Sudan suggested that demarcation doesn't actually need to finish before the referendum. I'm sure there are different uh, views on that, but it is still uh, incomplete uh, in many parts. And, of course, Abia as well and the demarcation of the boundaries of Abia, uh, which has a, a big impact on, on, on the stability in the country for a relatively little area. So then there's those CPA issues. After those are sorted out, we get to uh, something that I spend a lot of time on and a lot of others do, which is what we euphemistically call the, the post-referendum arrangements. That is, how is life going to be after the referendum uh, in the event of either unity or secession? And the two parties, NCP and SPLM, uh, laid out nine different categories of issues in the referendum legislation that they agree they need to negotiate uh, to determine how they're going to be managed after the referendum. Those nine areas are oil, water, land, citizenship, security, debts and assets, currency, public service, and agreements and international covenants. Uh, each one of those is a highly complex area um, that really requires uh, specialized uh, knowledge and specialized people. There hasn't been a lot of progress so far in negotiating these issues. There's been a lot of talk about talking about them, but as far as I can tell, not a lot of talk between the parties themselves. Uh, the parties appear to be uh, positioned to negotiate these issues bilaterally to start. Uh, one of the real questions is whether at some point a mediator will come in, uh, particularly if the talks are not progressing very far. Uh, president Thabo Mbeki, former president of South Africa, has been uh, increasingly engaged on these issues and speculation that he could be such a mediator if the parties want him to be, but that remains a little bit unclear. President Mbeki is, uh, along with many other heavy hitters, coming to New York and Washington next week, and that might uh, help to move things along. What is the U.S. role in these um, negotiations? I think at this point it's largely uh, helping to encourage them to happen and also providing some technical expertise uh, to the process because a lot of that expertise is needed. There's a particular lack of that expertise uh, in the South, uh, given what they've been through in the many years of war. Uh, they've formed this task force to, to focus on the referendum and post-referendum issues and to help themselves really educate themselves on these issues. And so that's been a positive step, um, but there is a long way for them to go in particular in their ability to, to manage some of these issues, unfortunately. There's also real questions about the, the sequencing of how you deal with these nine different issues. You can't discuss them all at once, um, but at the same time, many of them are interlinked with other ones, and so you can't discuss them in isolation either. Uh, it's a very complex process. I do think that there are three of these issues in particular that, for me, rise to the top in terms of importance. One is oil, and as everybody knows, uh, you know, most of it's in the south, but the, the pipeline and the refineries are in the north, and both governments are highly dependent on oil revenue. Um, if there is not substantial progress on an agreement on oil, then I think the, uh, the referendum itself might be in doubt. Um, Citizenship issues are uh, overlooked, but very important, I think, particularly concerning Southerners who live in the North. Uh, there may be anywhere between one to two million of them, possibly more, and their security needs to be a real priority. And security issues themselves, particularly around the border, and how the two armies uh, relate to each other, uh, either in the event of unity or secession. So what's the next step? Um, hopefully these talks uh, in New York and Washington next week help to, to move things forward. 
but fundamentally, it's really up to the parties to, to help uh, make progress on these post-referendum issues and in making the referendum itself a reality. Um, but it goes without saying that uh, the time is very short. Seven months from now until the referendum, those last couple months are probably going to be taken up with uh, all, the, all the hype and excitement uh, leading up to the referendum. So there's really a, a small window of a few months right now, I think, to make uh, significant progress on these post-referendum issues that I think are vital to uh, stability in the North-South relationship. Thanks very much. Thank you to all the panelists for putting a great deal on the table. Uh, I think what I'd like to do is to defer and see, is there anybody, are there any issues on the table that anybody would like to have another uh, uh, crack at, or shall we go ahead and throw it open to the audience? We'll, we'll throw it open to the audience then. Uh, we'll come right down here uh, to start off with. Please state uh, your name and any affiliation that you may have, uh, and let us know to whom the question is directed, please. Right here on the aisle. Hi, thank you very much. My name is Craig Olson. I'm a retired Foreign Service officer. Also went to SICE uh, a <laughs> long time ago. Um, I, was in, I was in Nairobi in January. I was posted in Nairobi in January 2005 for the peace agreement. At that time, and I was you know, part, of the, part of the crowd that was doing all that, at that time, um, everyone thought that the referendum, should it occur, would result in secession, and everybody occurred. Everybody at that that time also believed that should that happen, which is likely, as you as you've all kind of agreed to, that the 50-year uh, civil war would break out again. Do you think that will that that will in fact occur? No takers. <laughs> I'll make a quick comment on that. Uh, I, I think. It's always likely, um, considering how many peace agreements have broken down and how many times uh, Sudan has returned to war. Uh, but like I said, I, I do think it's important to emphasize that both parties are benefiting from the status quo right now, and so it's not in their best interest to be stubborn about the arrangements and about the negotiations that are going on. So I do think that there can be something in between this unity and secession, so they can have secession and name only, like I said, and work on the arrangements um, you know, for many years after secession occurs. I might pick up on, on, on you know, something Mark just mentioned now and mentioned in his, his talk as well. You know, there are many things between unity and secession. In the CPA, there are only two things, unity or secession. And in the parties' minds, there are only two things, and particularly in the, the SPLM's mind. Uh, every time that topic of a sort of, you know, in-between arrangement comes up, SPLM says no. Now, of course, there are, you know, the sort of behind-the-scenes dynamics as well. Um, but my sense is that they're pretty set on, uh, on secession, full and complete. And, you know, yes, these issues will have to be negotiated well past the referendum. There's no way that, you know, debt and asset issues, for example, are going to be sorted out before January. Um, to get back to your initial question, you know, will there be war? Uh, impossible to predict. Um, but I think it's not too late to, to avoid it. And if I could just add, I mean, I agree um mostly with what John and Mark have said. I think one piece of critical analysis that's missing as we approach the referendum is 
the internal debates within the NCP. Uh, the NCP is such an opaque entity, and we like to think of it as a, a monolithic uh, regime. But in fact, there are various strands of thought as to what would be best for the NCP to maintain its power within Sudan. And if that means all of the current territory of Sudan or perhaps in, uh, you know, what w would be left of Sudan after the secession, there are, there are those who um, could see that the, the best way to, to maintain um, power in all of the, the, uh, the wealth and, and the advantages that come with their current with the current status quo by allowing the referendum to happen, but not by making peace in Darfur or not by opening up the, the political system. And so we really don't have much access to those debates. And if we had better information, then the United States and the international community could offer better incentives and disincentives to, to that debate within the NCP. But until now, we, we don't have that information. Let's move right over here. Hi, guys. Hi, guys. Thanks for being here. Uh, Benedict Teagarden with the Stimson Center. I'm just curious if uh, this is for all of you, if you could address the... Um, the issue with regional actors, uh, they've been so integral, uh, such an intricate part of these conflicts, both in Darfur and uh, the North-South conflict, uh, most notably Chad, Uganda, and Ethiopia. What vested interests they might have in uh, the way in which the election turns out, uh, what vested interests they might have in terms of war breaking out, um, and what power they would have to actually uh, influence and act on those interests. Thanks. I guess I'll, I'll comment on Darfur and then maybe leave uh, the South to John, uh, who knows more about that than I do. But the regional actors in Darfur, there's a lot, there are a lot of changes that are occurring now. From what I understand, uh, in the, the most significant of the changes is, is happening in, in Chad, where Chad, has, the government of Chad is no longer uh, providing a safe haven or a, a place of refuge for uh, the Justice and Equality Movement, which is the primary rebel group in Darfur right now. So they've moved out of the region, and this has caused a lot of the recent violence that we've been reading about this month, where the GEM uh, convoys are moving back into Darfur and trying to take over some of the regions that they had before, like in Kolbis and Jebel Moon and, and in regions of Jebel Mara. Um, as well. So they're moving into these regions. Um, of course, the Sudanese government is fighting them when they arrive, and this has caused a lot of uh, the recent casualties in the, in the past month. And then there's always a question of Libya and what um, support they have been giving to the rebel groups, and I think there's a big question mark there. There's been nothing documented in terms of what is being provided, as well as Eritrea, which has traditionally supported um, the justice and equality movement and the um, the SLA, the Sudanese Liberation Army, and they've provided offices and funding and other things, which has been documented by the UN. But the, it's been quiet on that front, too, and not much, as far as I know, has been coming out of Eritrea. On, on regional perspectives on the referendum, um, Uganda has traditionally been a very strong supporter of the South and is you know, probably most forward-leaning in, in supporting secession. Uh, Kenya walks a finer line, but uh, but has pretty strong relations with the South in particular. Ethiopia, of course, was uh, had a lot to do with the the founding of the SPLA, and uh, but they also try to balance relations between Khartoum and Juba. 
Egypt is especially important in this regard, especially concerning uh, water and Nile access. And, of course, there's been a lot of talk recently about new arrangements concerning uh, governing of the Nile and new agreements that are being signed by pretty much all the Nile countries except for Egypt and Sudan. Um, and you know how Egypt views possible secession and how that impacts uh, access to the Nile, because that would you know if there is secession, that means a new state that would need to be party to the Nile Basin Agreement. Uh, they are watching that very closely, and uh, you know you hear things coming out of Cairo about you know we we want unity and that sort of thing, um, and I think that they're going to continue to push their agenda all the way until the referendum and beyond that. I, I agree with both assessments. I think the one thing to point out is that it seems like um, the the administration has also has also um, begun to make it a priority of engaging with the regional stakeholders. This past week, uh, Vice President Biden on his trip to Africa uh, made Sudan a priority in his stops in Egypt, Kenya, and in South Africa. And so, the the more that the, the United States can can do. Um, to to show um, or to uh, discuss with other countries how it's approaching the issues, and then can try to find ways to um, to to collaborate. It, it, you know, the the better um, I think the the overall diplo- external diplomacy can be. So I don't know if there's anyone in the back. If not, let's go over to the gentleman there up against the wall. Good afternoon. Uh, my name is Bill Reed. I'm, I'm from the Black Press Foundation. I, I have a question for everybody, a two-part question for everybody. Uh, how would you rate uh, General Grayton's performance toward peace and where he's been now? And would you also, starting with Susan Rice, rate the African assistant secretaries through Janelle Frazier, I think, and uh, up to now with uh, Johnny Carson on the Sudan issue, of course. A ground to cover there. Anybody ta- care to take a, a first crack at the... I, I think I already made my feelings clear about Gratian's strategy right now. I, I agree with his, his approach. So, uh, Since the, the beginning of the Obama administration and and the appointment of uh, Special Envoy Gratian, uh, Saved Our Four, has supported this strategy of engaging all the actors in Sudan and really offering uh, a choice for those that would oppose a peaceful referendum, oppose reaching a peace agreement and, and durable solution to Darfur. And um, we, we have felt that uh, the U.S. policy should be based on uh, what uh, actors within Sudan are doing, and that there should be a clear menu um, and, and clear uh, choices or clear consequences set forth by the, the United States for Khartoum, for Juba, for the, the Darfuri rebels. And so in that way, we've, we've agreed with General Gratian's approach. I think the best way to assess uh, uh, where, you know, his, his one-year-plus um, uh, has gotten is just based um, uh, on the facts on the ground that right now we are um, not anywhere closer to peace in Darfur. We may actually be worse off than we were uh, uh, last year. 
Um, the elections, as I stated in my remarks, did, did not do, do much, uh, if anything, to, to advance uh, peace. And, um, but yet uh, the question of the referendum really is where, um, the, where General Grayson and the Obama administration, um, you know, that work is still yet to be done and, and largely is how they will be graded in the long term. And so um, we have called on uh, the administration to continue to assess the parties on what they're doing um, and not what they're promising and to have a menu of uh, incentives, rewards, and consequences that are applied directly um, both by the United States and, if possible, uh, the international community to those actors. And as part of that, really uh, not making it just be General Gratian's assignment, but um, uh, as was the case this week, having um, higher-level officials like uh, Vice President Biden, like Ambassador Rice, and, and also President Obama um, contributing uh, to, to diplomacy uh, because there is, is certainly um, not enough attention across the international community um, on, uh, and not enough coordinated attention. And so any efforts that they can contribute um, will play a, a critical role in preventing the worst over the next year. Let's come right down here to the gentleman who's been very patient in the front. Can you hear me? Uh, Lawrence Freeman from ER Magazine, Africa Desk. Uh, sources uh, that I have indicated that there's a full tilt now in the State Department and also with help from the National Security Council behind Southern Sudan. Uh, not only uh, military aid, military training, but full tilt for the separation. Now, uh, that would seem to me may cause a dangerous situation for a country to separate in Africa, which I'm not in favor of, and have the United States supporting it before it occurs. And doesn't this also cause a danger to other countries? A child, Debbie, came out and made an excellent statement on the danger of this to his country, Eritrea, Nigeria. So could not we be, uh, the U.S., if this, my sources are true, couldn't we be embarking on a very dangerous course for Africa right now? I'd like your comments. Um, I guess I'll start. <laughs> Uh, I agree with it. the military buildup is problematic. Just last week, they were talking about the Air Force, um, the, the, the uh, development of an Air Force in uh, South Sudan for the first time. And I think the, the, these are serious issues. And, and I may be in agreement um, with Gratian, like I mentioned before, on, on some issues and, and not in agreement um, with him on, on others, although I don't know what role he plays in terms of how that uh, that money is allocated and how the military develops, but um, I agree with you. I think that that's, there's, a, there's a real risk there. I think that we should make a distinction between uh, U.S. support to the government of South Sudan in terms of capacity building and its ability to potentially govern its, its own territory um, within a, a year's time and the, the, the military support um, yeah, yes, I, I think that uh, you know any any armed uh, uh, race in Sudan, uh, which is occurring now um, through multiple parties, is probably not good for for long term peace. And so uh, that means the the United States should be doing more to um, uh, to ensure that the UN arms embargo for Darfur 
is respected by all parties. That's the, the government of Sudan that, you know, continues to, to violate the, um, the arms embargo as well as the, the Darfuris, uh, rebels. Um, but, but also, um, you know, it's a sensitive topic uh, as we approach these, these negotiations that, that John talked about. Um, and, you know, I think security guarantees would be one thing, but, but arms buildup is, is probably, probably not not helpful. But again, that should be distinguished between the United States and the international community providing all available support to a government of South Sudan, which either way is going to have to, is going to be responsible for the protection of its citizens um, uh, after the referendum for providing basic services and for running a country. And so we, we should not, I mean, we should support that wholeheartedly at the State Department and across all levels of government. I mean, let me just address the, the precedent slippery slope argument that you made, which, which is a good one, and I, I see the point, but I'm, I'm conflicted on it. And, you know, when Eritrea broke off from Ethiopia uh, a while back, you know, there wasn't a, a long line of other Im- imminent secessions in Africa right after that, and I'm sure there was some fear about it as well. Nor is there a long line of, of imminent secessions elsewhere in Africa if the South chooses to secede. There are a few places, you know, Casamance and that sort of thing, where, where there should be concern. Um, but I think the, the precedent thing is a little bit overhyped sometimes. If, if I could just add one more thing as well. Um, back to your question, uh, Mr. Freeman. I think it is important to look closely at exactly how that military funding is allocated. I don't know the the budget justifications, um, the allocations uh, that well, but these are private contracts that are occurring over the past few weeks, I know, with the Air Force, with Lockheed Martin. So they're, they're private companies in the U.S. And, and what kind of control the government has over that and the resources that they give to the South Sudan government that then goes to the contractors you know, makes it a more difficult issue than just direct funding for military um, assistance. But it's worth looking into the numbers to see how much, if there is direct military assistance or not. Go to the gentleman right next door here. Just the other way. Flip it the other way. Um, I'm ex-World Bank, and I worked on um, Sudan in the 80s on irrigation and rural development projects. But in 53, when I was being shipped back to boarding school in England, uh, 55 other, we flew directly over Juba. And as we were approaching Juba, the pilot called in, called us, those who were permitted to the cockpit, he said, look what's happening. Juba was in flames one month after independence. And uh, then I worked at the World Bank, and it's very clear that really this is a vast country. There's nothing in common between the people straddling, straddling the Eritrea border and those straddling the Chad border, those on the Libyan-Egyptian border, and those on the Uganda border. And if you look at, you know, it is a creation of the British. There was never a state of Sudan. It, the Brits did it in 1893. It was a colony of Egypt, back again, and Egypt was a colony of Her Majesty's. <laughs> and uh, you know, this tension is built up. And if you look at, uh, you know, it's the same size as the EU, EU24. You move it up and turn it, it goes to the Russian border, to the Netherlands, Denmark to uh, Sicily, Sardinia to the Crimea. So look at the record of that piece of real estate from 1913 to 1947. Christians slaughtering each other with abandon. Not a bad idea, by the way, for me. 
But uh, you know, you have to accept. You have to accept that this is the British Empire is finally breaking up, and and you know, Humpty Dumpty has fallen off the wall, and Yankee Doodle cannot put it back in place. Uh, you have to think long-range vision. Uh, when we landed at uh, in Khartoum in '55, we were staying at the Nile Hotel, a really gorgeous hotel. And there was a very senior civil servant, uh, imperial consul, who knew uh, Sudan. And, you know, the British had a real feel for Sudan. They did a very good job. I mean, other sides considered. But he was saying, this country is too big. We should have divided it into five different states. And it's happening. So... There we have state building in Western Europe, state building in Africa, state uh, so sort of Charles Charles Tilly uh, looming around here, uh, uh, rest his soul. Anybody is Sudan too big? I don't know how to. <laughs> that's even an imperial sounding question. Uh, we? All right. Well, I will say that uh, there there is concern, and a few people have have raised it in, in some articles recently that the. Um, the referendum and, and southern secession, as this as this becomes what everyone's going to talk about over the next year, what will that do to the demands of the Darfuri rebels? Um, and, and even some private conversations, I know that they've uh, begun to put it on the table, maybe not seriously, but as a negotiating piece. And um, you know that's where there's active conflict in Darfur. But, uh, you know, the East has been uh, festering or in conflict uh, with Khartoum for, for most of independence as well. So, uh, you know, those, those are concerns, and they're the very reasons why to address root uh, problems and root causes of conflict in Sudan, you have to deal with issues of power sharing and wealth sharing and uh, Khartoum. And the, the elections did not do that. And that's why we are where we are. All right. Let's take another question. The lady right here on the aisle. Hi, Faith McDonald from the Institute on Religion and Democracy. Um, I believe that Khartoum has done a splendid job of helping bring people together outside of its uh, realm, um, the people who, who don't like what Khartoum's doing. So even though you might want to split Sudan, a lot of the marginalized people groups are coming together quite a bit. Um, and my uh, question about that is, I think it was, um, John, you mentioned uh, in Khartoum, how people were disappointed that Yasser had pulled out of the elections, and um, and Sean, you talked about the um, the crackdown on protesters. Um, now you mentioned a Darfurian who was murdered, but uh, I had been following the um, the protest movement Grifna and wondered if they are still active after the elections, if they, you know, were totally demoralized by what happened, or if there is hope that they, they and others, um, other marginalized people groups, can keep pulling together um, and, you know, maybe work towards democracy that way. And also, my, my second question to whoever is, what about Nuba Mountains? What is happening with the popular consultation, and, uh, and how do they fit into this whole picture? Thank you. Uh, I can address a couple aspects of that. First, I, I 
don't agree that the periphery, everything but Khartoum, has done a good job of unifying amongst them. Um, I think Khartoum's nightmare is that the periphery, you know, gets its act together and, and unifies. But, uh, you know, there was times when, when the South and, and some of the Darfur rebel movements were you know, supporting each other. Not a lot of that recently, I don't think. Um, uh, and if uh, there is a vote for secession, then it's not going to happen uh, anymore. Um, uh, popular consultation and uh, Nuba Mountains, you know, popular consultation is this process that's supposed to happen in Southern Kordofan State and uh, Blue Nile State, uh, two states in the north that are on the border and have a lot of Southern support in them. Uh, good progress has been made, I think, in Blue Nile State, uh, in part because they had their state-level elections, and so they're able to move forward with this process. And so uh, they're doing a good deal of, of planning on the design of popular consultation, what it actually means to sort of reach down to the population and, and gather their opinion on how the CPA has been implemented, and then if they're not happy with how it's being implemented, renegotiate some sort of an arrangement with Khartoum. Uh, Southern Kordofan is way behind because they haven't had their state-level elections because there was an agreement to redo the census in that state, and then the elections have been delayed uh, really indefinitely, but probably a few months from now. Um, so very concerning how the timing is going to work out for them because if they have their elections, say, in November, and you're supposed to have a popular consultation process by the time of the referendum in January, uh, that's a quite short window. On the... Your first question about the peripheries coming together, I think that there was some progress made ahead of the elections with the Juba alliance that had met um, in the fall before the elections. This was the SPLM inviting all of the opposition parties down to Juba to, to begin a conversation on how to approach the elections together. And Yasser Arman, the SPLM candidate for president, was sort of the spearhead of that. And um, there, before he pulled out, there was a lot of debate within the SPLM. The northern sector of the SPLM uh, and Yasser um, didn't seem like they wanted to, to, to pull out, but it was the those, um, as I said, in, in the south who saw the referendum as the most important item um, ahead for the party that that ended up winning that debate and um, and pulled out from the elections. And so it, it will be interesting to see what happens to the northern sector of the SPLM uh, or, uh, after the referendum. Will this be uh, a party that other uh, opposition parties that are frankly um, old and don't have a lot of new ideas and or resources are um, seen as sort of political dinosaurs. Would they rally around an SPLM northern sector? It was really interesting also to, to see Yasser Arman go to Darfur before he withdrew. And uh, 100,000 people apparently showed up in El Fasher. And he said, look, as the SPLM, we apologize for not being here sooner, but come out and vote for me. So would he do something like that? Or are there other types in a uh, post-referendum Sudan. Um, in terms of the question about Garifna, yes, uh, they were the ones I were, was referring to when I said students were particularly targeted by the National Intelligence and Security Services. In fact, in one instance, one of uh, the activists of this youth activism movement that started among sort of the educated uh, young um, elite in Khartoum but had branches across the country um, in the months before the elections, one of their members um, was detained about three weeks before the elections by the NIS and was shown a picture 
uh, of the dead Darfuri that I mentioned and said, if you keep, keep it up, this will happen to you. Um, others were also, two were arrested during the elections, and some of them have, some of the leadership has fled, but I know others are still thinking about how, what they will do um, and if they need to form partnerships with the opposition parties or if they will continue as a, an independent movement, uh, what they will do as Darfur evolves. So that was you know, a, a positive that it was very much uh, them uh, coming together and putting this uh, initiative on their own accord outside the traditional forms of politics in some ways similar to the Iranian you know, student activists, but they, they you know, uh, faced this uh, massive force of the Sudanese state. And so we'll see what, what happens next. A couple quick comments on that. There's really no cohesive opposition in Darfur right now to such an extent that it would be not in the best interest of the SPLM to create an alliance with them because I think it would disrupt their current partnership with the NCP. So I think that that has a long way to go um, and before anything like that happens. The second point on popular consultation will be the most interesting election to watch, I think, in any state because both parties are very much engaged and invested in the outcome of um, the elections in southern Kordofan. And I think that... um, both want to win the state assembly and they're going to hold each other accountable during the census process and the re-registration and, and, and then the polling period. So if there are fair and free elections in Sudan, it's probably going to be in Southern Kordofan because everybody's watching. Um, and then lastly, just an interesting note on Yasser Arman. Um, when we were in Khartoum, uh, I had dinner with uh, the political director for the Carter Center, um, John Young, who was hired to basically talk to all the party leaders. And he said that he really thinks that Yasser Arman uh, pulled out because they thought he could win um, through the runoff. So he would get uh, a certain number of votes, and then after that it would uh, be problematic because then the opposition parties could rally around him. Whether or not that's that's true, I don't know, but there was a lot of talk about that. And I thought it was interesting because it meant that he had more popular appeal in Darfur than most people expected, and then I saw that to a certain extent, too, in observing the elections there. So and it, that goes back to your original question about the, there being unity in the periphery. It's interesting that Yasser Arman could have been a candidate that united um, uh, people outside of South Sudan. I think actually the lady, yeah, right behind uh, the previous questioner. Thank you. Um, Tigis Gebru from the um, SMU Political Science Department, TAR Center for Political Studies. I have two questions, and I would love to get each of your takes. Um, can you talk about the likeliness of the U.S. taking an active role in the peace process, um, investing resources, money, and technical expertise. Uh, And the other question is, I think um, it's been left from this discussion, um, um, the indictment of ICC's indictment of Bashir, and how is that going to impact international communities' involvement in the peace process, in the negotiations, and in the referendum? Thank you. I wasn't sure about the first question. Was that about um, the engagement of resources and time with the peace process that, in terms of how much the, the U.S. government is going to... Yeah, the a lot of its weight 
talked about the U.S. leading um, the international community's um, involvement. So how is that likely? Well, I mean, I, I think that they're already planning this Juba surge. Um, General Gratian has spoke, spoken of it and that a um, high-level diplomat will be going to Juba um, soon to, to lead uh, the efforts for um, providing ca capacity support and also for entering into a possible mediation role that, that John discussed. Until that actually occurs, we, we can't assess um, what the missing parts um, might be, but they've, they've repeatedly spoken over the last few months about this so-called Juba surge. Um, in terms of the ICC indictment, uh, I think that there's been, and, and it's a role or in the, the peace process, um, I think that a number of people after the indictment of Bashir um, or even the, the announcement that the prosecutor um, uh, Ocampo was going to seek the arrest warrant said, oh, this will immediately disrupt the peace process. But at that point, because you can't, go for justice and peace at the same time. But at that point, there really was no peace process. There was no even uh, ex commonly accepted site where the rebels in the government of Sudan was negotiating. Um, it had, had largely uh, withered on the vine and was going nowhere. And instead, once you had the indictment in March of 2009, um, over the over the, the next few months, you saw an intense interest in African and Arab countries and pushing for a peace process to resolve Darfur. And out of that um, and in other contributions, you, you now have the, the Doha peace process because the, um, you know, the, and the African Union appointed uh, or assigned the African high-level panel on Darfur to former South African President Thabo Mbeki, and then the Qataris agreed to, to host the talks, and you had a new um, joint, joint mediator. So all of that energy, in some ways, was, was uh, uh, invested in the peace process because the African and Arab countries feared the indictment. And so now you've had two framework agreements uh, between the government of Sudan and uh, two different uh, rebel groups, uh, and you've had commitments to ceasefire, and you've had at least uh, the sides, you know, in the same capital negotiating issues in, in a way that, that did not exist before the indictment. And so, you know, is there a cause and effect? Maybe no, but the, you also can't say that the, the peace, that the indictment uh, hurt the peace process when it was basically dead at that point. I'll just add that when, whenever I'm in Sudan, I'm always surprised at how infrequently talk of the ICC and the indictment actually comes up. Um, it, it, to me, doesn't seem relevant on a day-to-day -day basis in the country. And you know, perhaps that's a, a critique of the international community and of, of the ICC itself. Um, you know, it, it comes up when Bashir gets invited to the World Cup and, you know, the recent stuff about, uh, you know, inviting him to the AU summit in Uganda. And so it's, you know, sort of at that, you know, macro political level. Um, and there's a symbolic cost there to, to him, I think. Uh, but on a day-to-day -day basis, I don't, I don't see the impact, um, we, yeah. 
I, just to pick up where John was, I, I think this is making it really difficult for Bashir to travel around. And he mentioned a, a, few, a couple examples, but the New York Times did an article about uh, a month ago explaining all of the, um, the, the, showing all the places where he was denied entry or he would be in a diplomatic environment where people would get up from his table and move to another table because they didn't want their picture taken with him. There was one recently with, with the uh, president of um, uh, Brazil, yeah. And he got up from the table and, and left because he didn't want his picture uh, taken with uh, Bashir. And then, this is causing a lot of problems diplomatically for Sudan. And I think are underappreciated and I think maybe not completely expected by the ICC when they put this forward. So, yes, it's, it's not mentioned as much in Sudan, but I think it's a problem for the upper levels of the administration. Time for one last question, and you, sir, were the first mover, so you've uh, seized the day. <laughs> Hello. Okay. Hi. My name is Christian Palfrey. I'm from the Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting. This is particularly for you, Mr. Gustafsson, because I think you mentioned it. Um, the uh, problem of Islamic radicalization um, in IDF camp, IDP camp. Excuse me. Um, do you see that? being affected in any way by the outcome of the referendum? And uh, in relation to that question, is there a clear best-case outcome for U.S. security in that regard? Well, first let me point out, is I wouldn't call it Islamic uh, radicalization, uh, be, though everybody in Darfur, uh, for the most part, is um, a Muslim. Um, the There's no Islamic component, and I, I don't think that... And you can see the justice and equality movement to some extent uh, distancing themselves from religious creed and uh, rhetoric. So I don't think that that is a popular calling um, for the movements there. I think throughout Darfur, the, the Islamist movements have really been on the decline since the 1990s. So I don't think that's um, an aspect. But in terms of um, it being a threat, it just the fostering of uh, rebel uh, feelings and uh, and animosity. I, I don't see that as a threat to the U.S. in any way or that there will be some sort of um, terrorist organization that forms uh, internationally out of it, although you know there have been recent reports of the Taliban and West Darfur and, and um, things like that that are worth looking into. But I don't think that there's an international component, and I don't think that there will be, mostly due to resources and uh, just the general reach of the Darfuris. Whether or not that can happen in the future, I don't know. I, I think it's unlikely in the immediate term, though. Well, let me thank everyone for turning out on the first day of the World Cup here and uh, after our 1-1 draw this morning. Uh, and let me thank very much the panelists for a talk that was uh, not oversimplified, blissfully, and uh, deeply informative. So please join us upstairs. Thank you. <laughs>